Good morning, everyone. Good to see you guys this morning, the last time that we meet this fall. If this is your first time here, we're happy to have you, glad to have you. Um, you're always welcome to join us on any Tuesday morning. Again, as normal, feel free to get up and get coffee, fill your plates up. We have donuts and kolaches um, on the side. So, Well, a couple things this morning. Um, like I said, this is the last time we'll meet this semester. We will pick back up sometime in January. So um, what's important to know there is if, you're, if you've never put your name on an email list for us to be able to communicate with you so that you know when we pick back up, um, we'd love to have that this morning before you leave. So you can either leave it with Elaine out in the front. Um, your table leader can get it to Elaine as well, um, just so that we know that you want us to communicate with you. So um, again, January, um, we'll, we'll pick back up. Also, I want you to know that, um, that in January, we're going to start a new series on, uh, on encounters with Jesus. So if you've been here this semester, you know that we've been in the Psalms all semester, and the focus really has been uh, on the disciplines of both loving God and being loved by him. What, is it, what does it look like to practice in our daily lives uh, praying, um, striving for contentment, meditation on God's word, right? We've been looking at those things this semester, and then next semester we're going to look at, um, in the Gospels, occasions where Jesus encounters other people and learn what it looks like to both be loved by him and for him to love other people. What would that mean for us to reach out and to love other people as well? So if you want to think of it that way, you could think that the fall has been about loving God, and the spring will really be about the structure, um, the, uh, the impetus for loving others. How did Jesus do it? Um, how does that give us uh, some, some structure to do that in our own lives as well? So we're excited about that next semester. Um, again, Paul and I have enjoyed teaching you guys. There's Paul in the back. Um, if you ever have any questions, if we can ever do anything for you, let us know. We'd love to, love to meet with you, love to know you better. This morning, we have the privilege of, um, of rounding out our time with a guest speaker named Dr. Ligon Duncan. And many of you may have uh, heard his name before. Dr. Duncan, will you at least raise your hand real quick and say hi? There you go. So let me read to you a little bit about Dr. Duncan um, so that you know what we're getting into this morning. Dr. Duncan is from, um, he told me to call him Ligon, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that, you know. I've heard other people do it, so I feel like I'm there now, you know. Um, well, Ligon is the, uh, is the chancellor and CEO of Reformed Theological Seminary that has just started a branch here in Dallas uh, with whom we are, we're partners uh, at PCPC. And so, um, so he's the president of all their different branches, all their sites around the country. Um, Dr. Duncan got his uh, undergraduate degree from Furman University, and I'm sorry, Dr. Duncan, I don't know, what's the mascot? I mean, I've been, the Paladins. I know you have a golf course on campus, which is pretty amazing. He also went, um, as do all good ministers, to Covenant Theological Seminary, right? Got his MDiv and MA from Covenant, PhD from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And, um, you know, he has a list of about, you know, three pages of things you can read about um, all the things that he's been uh, involved in, um, his books, he's written about 35 books, helped edit 35 books. He speaks around the world. He's been a, a very important figure in our own denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. Um, he's a churchman. 
He's pastored uh, uh, um, uh, a variety of churches. Um, most notably, the one that I know the best is uh, First Pres in Jackson, Mississippi. I'll just tell you a quick story that, um, you know, I used to work uh, on campus at Southern Methodist University. I was a campus minister for seven years with a ministry called RUF that's connected with our denomination as well. And um, at the end of uh, every spring, we would take a group of students um, to what was called, it's called Summer Conference on the beach. And we had two, you know, we had, to get to the beach, Panama City, there was two different ways you could take. One is through, um, you can go through uh, Shreveport down south and cut over close to New Orleans, or you can go through Jackson, Mississippi. And I had one student every year that would lobby for us to go through Jackson, Mississippi and to leave early on a Sunday so that he could hear Ligon preach on Sunday night. Now, he was always overruled, okay, so we never left early. But I think you should know how, how um, it, it's, a, it's a remarkable thing to have students want to go to church in the first place, to want to go there on a Sunday night, and to want to drive six hours to hear a man preach, okay? And so, um, so that hit home with us. Um, the other way you might know uh, Dr. Duncan is, is um, he has uh, been a part of co-founding something called Together for the Gospel, um, you'll know some of those blog posts, perhaps. Um, it's been a remarkable uh, institution that has helped bring and revitalize Reformed theology in our own time and place. So without further ado, I want to welcome up Dr. Ligon Duncan. He's going to preach for us this morning on Psalm 23. If you would, give him a hand as he comes up. A welcome. Thanks, Chad. If you have your Bibles uh, please open them to Psalm 23. I know many of you could say it from heart, probably in the King James Version. That's, that's how I learned it as a boy, and um, it's still very much in my heart. But uh, since you have been working through the Psalms, what better Psalm to look at together than the 23rd Psalm? Uh, before we even read the passage today, I want to, to say thank you for the privilege of being here. The last time I was in this room, I received a, uh, a, uh, an official Texan cowboy hat. Um, and, uh, and I still have it. My son occasionally swipes it from me. I, I was here a number of years ago to preach Winter Grace at uh, PCPC, and uh, you all were so kind to me. And now I'm back very regularly because of RTS in Dallas, and I'm so thankful for the partnership we have with PCPC. And I see Dr. Mark McDowell has, has made it through the traffic, and he is our executive director for RTS Dallas. Um, this psalm is a psalm about providence, and I, I think it's important for us to be clear about what we mean by the word providence if we were to use the shorter catechism answer to the question, what are God's works of providence? Some of you may know the answer to that. It goes like this, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. That is, um, it is a pervasive sense that God's hand of guidance and watch care are over us in every way in all of our lives. And, uh, of course, that's what's behind uh, Joseph's comments to his brothers after all the things that he had gone through, many of them because of wicked actions that they had performed 
remember he'll say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. David had a real sense that even though his, his own brothers had done things against him that were meant to harm him, the Lord had used those very things for his good. I was, um, I was reminded of something like this just two weeks ago. I, I was in Indonesia in the middle of um, the, the month of November for a couple of weeks. And uh, you, you may not know it, Indonesia is the fourth largest country in the world. It's the largest Muslim country in the world. You know, the largest Muslim country in the world is not in the Middle East, it's in Southeast Asia. 87% of the 250 million people in Indonesia are Muslim. And, uh, but you, and the second largest city in the world is in Indonesia, uh, Jakarta. 30 million people. It's twice the size of New York City. Um, and, uh, and of course, it's, it's about 90% Muslim. But the governor of Jakarta uh, for the last four years has been a Calvinist Christian. And he is now in prison. And uh, of all the amazing things that I got to do the last two weeks, the most extraordinary one that I don't think I'll ever forget is going to visit him in prison. He is in prison uh, because he was charged and convicted of blasphemy against Islam. And uh, this was a very, very shocking thing because Indonesia officially has religious freedom. And uh, as, as you know, uh, hardline Muslims believe that it is blasphemous for you and me, infidels, to quote from the Quran. And uh, he was caught on video quoting from the Quran. Uh, and was charged with blasphemy against Islam and convicted to two years in prison. And I got to go visit him in prison. And I spent two hours with him, and, and one of the, he, he shared with us nine lessons that the Lord has already taught him while he's in prison. And uh, the fourth of those nine lessons, I was taking notes as fast as I could while this man talked. He's about 40 years old. Uh, he's a, he was a pro-business, anti-corruption candidate, was doing a tremendous job as the governor of Jakarta, very, very popular even with moderate Muslim people, and so this has been a real crisis. But one of the things he said, and his wife Veronica was sitting next to him when he said this, he said, I believe that if I had finished my term, his term was due to be up in October, he said, I believe that if I had finished my term, I would have been divorced. I don't think my marriage would have survived it because he was getting up at 4 a.m. And, and going into the office every day, coming home at 11 o'clock at night, not talking with his wife, not involved in his children's life. He was just working himself to death. And you can imagine if you're the governor of 30 million people, there's always something to do, and it's very pressing. And he said, I, I wouldn't want my extremist Muslim enemies to know this, but I think God used them to save my marriage. And his wife was sitting right next to him when he said it, and her tears in her eyes. And he said, but now, even though I can only see my wife once a week, um, I talk to her every day, I talk to my children every day, I listen to them, and I'm involved in their lives, and I believe that God used what they did, my, these enemies, to save my marriage. Now, that's a sense of providence, isn't it? Uh, he, he, he see, even in this horrible situation where he's going to be in prison, for two years in a country that supposedly has religious freedom, uh, 
nevertheless, he sees God's hand in it. This psalm is a psalm in which David is, is professing to you he sees God's hand in his life. And he sees it in very striking ways. And I'd like to see three or four of those things that he, he teaches. There's so much in this psalm you could do a whole series on it. But I, I want you to see four things this morning. And before we read God's word, let's pray and ask for his help and blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So speak, Lord. Your servants listen. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the word of God. Hear it in Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. Here's the first thing that I want you to see in this psalm. And everything else in this psalm flows from this. It is this remarkable statement that David makes at the beginning of the psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. Now we've known that, most of us in this room have known that for so long it does not surprise us. When, when, when we hear somebody say, the Lord is my, we're, we're ready to fill in shepherd just like this. It's second nature. We say, of course, the Lord is my shepherd. But that is a shocking statement. And it would have been shocking to the first people who heard David say this. Why? Because the imagery of shepherd was very commonly applied to kings and leaders in Israel and in the ancient Near East. When you, when you read the Bible, you will regularly see kings called shepherds. Why? It's, the imagery is, to, is designed to show the responsibility, the obligation of the king to provide for, guide, and protect the people over which he rules. And you can even find that language applied to people outside of Israel who are kings and leaders. So the imagery of a shepherd for a leader is very, very common in the Bible and in the, in the ancient Near East. You will find, for instance, in the book of Ezekiel, the language of shepherds 
used both for the political and religious leaders of Israel. Now, interestingly, they're being criticized in the book of Ezekiel for though they are shepherds, they're not good shepherds. <laughs> they're bad shepherds. And they're being criticized for not being good shepherds. So the, the, the imagery of shepherd for kings and leaders, religious uh, and spiritual uh, or governmental and social is a very, very common theme. But David now says, but who's my shepherd? The Lord is my shepherd. And it's, it, it is a, it's a stunning statement. The, the, the one who's watching over me, the one who's guiding me, the one who's providing for me, the one who's protecting me is the Lord himself. And it's a, it is a statement of glorious condescension that God is willing to be designated in such a way. I, I don't know whether uh, Chad mentioned Together for the Gospel, but Together for the Gospel is a, is a multi-denominational pastors conference that started uh, about... 12 years ago, and, um, and a, a, a couple of Southern Baptist friends and a Reformed Charismatic Apostle, whatever that is, and, and I got together and, and uh, put this conference together, and, and most of us said, okay, like 35 people will come. Uh, and Al Mohler said, nope, everywhere I go out there, I'm finding young people that are on fire for Reformed theology, and I actually think you're going to find that a lot of people came. In the very first conference, we had about 3,500. We, we expect about 12,500 uh, in April of this next year. It's really been a phenomenon. But out of that, an article was written called Young, Restless, and Reformed. And it was talking about all these young people in all sorts of denominations that have embraced Reformed theology. And one of the things that they that, that, that came out about that time were these T-shirts that, that said things like, you know, Jonathan Edwards is my homeboy, you know. <laughs> And, it, you know, when you hear that, it's kind of funny. Jonathan, you don't think of Jonathan Edwards as your homeboy. But, but far more shocking than the statement that Jonathan Edwards is my homeboy is the statement that the Lord is my shepherd. <laughs> that, that God would condescend to be the one who personally watches over us and cares for us and protects us and provides for us. When he is the creator of the universe, he spoke everything into being by the word of his power. All things in this universe, 13.8 billion light years across, are upheld by the word of his power, and he is personally interested in your life. That is remarkable. So don't, don't let that sentence just pass by you. There is a world of comfort and a world of help in the affirmation of that sentence. And David's ability to say that, I know, you know, it, it's, you, you know the psalm based on, the song based on uh, Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, his eye is on the sparrow and I know that he watches over me. It's the same kind of idea here. The Lord is my shepherd. He's taking care of me. So there's the first thing that I want you to see. Everything in this psalm flows from that particular affirmation. God is my shepherd and he is watching over me. And notice the, notice the, um, the, the assertion, because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Not, I shall not want anything, but I shall not lack anything. 
There's, there's nothing that I need that I will lack because the Lord is my shepherd. You see, and that, that is an affirmation of providence. Because God is the one who's watching over me. I won't lack anything that I need. There's, there's the opening affirmation of the psalm. It's an affirmation about providence. And look, if you don't believe in providence, if you don't believe in the Lord's providence, you're just one step away from stepping away from the faith. I mean, it's, providence is huge in the Christian life. And it's, it's huge in the Christian life both when things are going well and when things are going badly. And it, it, frankly, it may be harder to believe when things are going well and you don't feel like that you need God because things are going well. And interestingly, that's exactly where David goes first. So here's the second thing I want you to see. Notice that David emphasizes God's providence in his blessings. So these are good things that David is experiencing, and he, he mentions them in verses 2 and 3. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. So all of these good things that David uh, is experiencing, he acknowledges that they come from God. And that's hugely important. C.H. Spurgeon once said, there is no test, there is no trial of your faith like prosperity. Isn't that interesting? There's no trial like prosperity because prosperity tempts you to do two things. In prosperity, you're tempted to think that the gifts are better than the giver and to forget that the gifts come from the giver. So in prosperity, you're, te you're tempted to think, hey, you know, I, I worked hard, I got this. You know, the reason I have what I have is because I worked hard. Uh, I, I worked harder than those other guys, I'm smarter than those other, those other guys, I've had better deals than those other guys, I've got better people working for me than those other guys, and the reason I have this is because I worked hard. Um, and, and to forget that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And the other thing that happens, of course, in prosperity is you start liking the stuff that you have more than the things that you cannot see that are more real than the things that you can see. You start liking the things that will be temporal but will not last forever more than you love the things that are eternal. And, and David provides us with the um, material, with the, with, the, with the weaponry, with the, with the argument that we need to fight against that right here in, the verse, in verses 2 and 3. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. So the blessings in his life, he quickly acknowledges, come from God himself. So no good thing that he has comes from anywhere else but from the Lord. He acknowledges God as the source of those gifts. And at the end of the psalm, you're going to see he's going to acknowledge that God is better than those gifts. And he's really already hinted at that when he says, the Lord is my shepherd. 
So he gives you two things that you can use to fight against atheism in your prosperity. One, remembering that every good gift comes from the Lord. God is the giver. And then secondly, he reminds us that God is better than the gifts. That if, if you took all the gifts away, uh, God would be better than those gifts. Uh, it's interesting. You come back to, to Governor uh, Ahok again, who I met with in Indonesia a couple of weeks ago. He, he was talking uh, about his time in prison, and he said, uh, he said, you know, I, I really think another thing that God was doing in this is God was giving me a two-year retreat with him. He said, I, I was praying every day. I was reading my Bible every day. But he said, my, my thoughts were not on God. My, my thoughts were on running a, a city. <laughs> and he said, now I got nothing to do but read my Bible and think about God. And um, he said, God has given me a two-year retreat with him. And uh, it, 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 it strikes me there that in, in that affirmation, he's affirming that God is better. I mean, God had given him power. God had given him prestige. God was giving him success. He was bringing business into Jakarta. He was being recognized for his anti-corruption uh, politics. And all of that was taken away, but still he realized God was better than any of those things. And uh, so even from prison, he could acknowledge that the giver was better than the gifts. And David's giving you the tools to do that in your own life here. And that's a, that's a struggle for, for all of us. It, it, you know, one of the reasons why, why countries where there tends to be more prosperity also have higher amounts of non-practicing religious people is because of this very reason. People decide, I don't need God. I got everything I need. And here, here's David rehearsing truths to keep him from falling into that kind of thinking. Okay, there's a, now let, before I go on to the third thing, let me show you one little phrase in here that you don't want to miss. He restores my soul. Now this is fascinating. Because David, as a man walking with God, recognizes, nevertheless, there will be times, even in the Christian life, that you need the Lord to restore your soul. Uh, there, Psalm 119, verse 176, even if you walk in accordance with the Word of God, even if you obey the, obey the commandments of God, there are going to be places and times in your life when you need the Lord to come find you and rescue you and restore your soul. And David acknowledges that here. Don't, don't assume that just because you're walking with the Lord that you won't need Him to restore your soul. There'll, there'll be things that happen in your life, situations, temptations, trials, tribulations, and challenges where you will need Him to restore your soul. And here's what David is saying. He will. He will. He will restore your soul. He'll bring you back home. He'll restore your soul. Don't, don't forget that is one of his blessings. Okay, now let's go on to the third thing. No, isn't it, the language is fascinating. L listen, to, listen to verse 2. He makes me. He leads me. Verse 3. He restores me. He leads me. Verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. 
for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Notice again, you are with me. Your rod, your staff, you prepare. And you notice that? You went from the third person, he, to the second person, you. So it's, it's almost like when he gets into the valley of the shadow of death, he's more aware that God is with him. He stops talking about him and he starts talking to him. Um, Ed Hartman is the minister of missions at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson. He was here for the missions conference uh, uh, that PCPC hosted in November, the World Missions Conference. He was a missionary to Romania uh, for many years. And uh, he's married to Emily Potts, the daughter of, of a longtime friend of mine, uh, Hugh Potts, who just is a wonderful businessman and a ruling elder at First Pres in Kosciuszko and has been a longtime supporter of the seminary and Belhaven University and all sorts of good things. Uh, but Ed's first wife, who died of cancer, um, Amy, I, I, I knew Ed and Amy really well, and um, you know th they had an extraordinary marriage, four beautiful children, uh, and then she was diagnosed with a glioblastoma, and and the doctors said six months, and in, in six months she was gone, and it was an excruciating thing to see, and. Um, about six months after she died, we asked Ed to come preach at, at RTS, and he did, and he chose Psalm 23, and he said, let me show you something that I've learned uh, in the last year, and he said, it's this, that God is exceedingly close and present when you're in the valley of the shadow of death, and he took us right to this passage, and he said, Notice how when he's in the valley of the shadow of death, he doesn't say he, he says you. Not he prepares a table for me. Not he is with me or his rod and staff, but you are with me. The, the, the psalmist is uniquely um, aware of the presence of God. And that's part of the providence of God, knowing that the Lord is with you when you need him the most. And so that, that sense of presence, even in the trials of life, is huge. Some of you have read J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. If you haven't, you've missed out on a blessing. But in the very first chapter, he tells the story of a friend who is a, he was a British academic who had lost his opportunity to advance to uh, a higher rank in academia because he was a Bible-believing Christian. And he was taking a walk with him in the woods, and, you know, he was saying to his friend, I'm so sorry, you know, for what you've, you've lost because of your faithfulness to the Lord. You're, you won't be able to be a professor in your university. And the man says to J.I. Packer this, it doesn't matter because I have known God and they have not. It's a, it's a stunning statement. In, in other words, his, his awareness of the grace-given relationship with God that he has is worth far more to him than his loss of advancement in academia. 
and he realizes that he's rich and, and those who have kept him from advancing in the ranks of, of the academy are actually the ones who are, who are poor and impoverished because he knows God is with him. And, and the, the psalmist is very aware of that. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord is with me. And I, I've seen that over and over with godly Christians in trial. Maybe, maybe one of the most remarkable times was with Margaret Dubois. Margaret Dubois is one of the godliest women I've ever met. She was from a little town named Yazoo City. There really is a city in Mississippi called Yazoo City. And uh, she and her family had moved to, to Forest, Mississippi, where she, or to Hattiesburg, Mississippi, where she was a nurse at Forest General Hospital. And um, she was going in to work on the second shift, and her husband, who is now deceased, was supposed to watch over their, their child, their two-year-old child, and the child was lost track of and found face down in the swimming pool, we don't know how long later. And uh, he was airlifted to the PICU in Jackson. Margaret called me in the middle of the night and said, Ligon, could you meet me at Blair Batson Hospital? And I said, absolutely, I can meet you there, Margaret. And the little boy lingered for two days and then died in her arms. And, uh, you know, those, those doctors and nurses in PICU, they see a lot of hard stuff every day. But all of us were gathered around while she held that little boy in her arms and he took his last breath. And, and, and even those tough doctors, there were some of them with, with little, you could see little tears uh, in, in their eyes. And uh, when that child died, Margaret looked up at me and she said, um, Ligon, um, could we sing the doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I felt like I was in the room with Job. You know, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That was Margaret. She's holding her dead two-year-old boy in her arms, and she still trusted God. She, she knew that God was with her. He was the lover of her soul, he cared for her, he was watching over her, he would get her through this. I, I, I felt like I do not deserve to be in the room with this woman. Uh, but, you know, those are the kind of people I love to be around. People who in the worst places can say, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's, that's her, the sense of providence in her life. Now, one last thing. Notice, uh, notice how he ends this psalm. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What, what the culminating spiritual blessing that David thinks of in this psalm is of never-ending fellowship with God. For him, God is home. God is not just a means to an end. God is the end itself. He is the great blessing. And the greatest blessing that David can articulate is, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will be uh, in his family forever, fellowshipping and communing with him. I, I love various poetic renditions of Psalm 23, and I try and 
memorize uh, different ones of them. The, the King of Love My Shepherd Is is one that you may know from your hymnals, uh, which is one of the versions of this psalm. And of course, the, the Scottish metrical version of this psalm is very, very uh, famous as well. But, but Isaac Watts' version of this psalm is one of my favorites. And um, it's... Um, uh, it, it, it starts out affirming that um, Jehovah will supply my need. And it ends this way. It, um, it says, there, talking about in the house of the Lord, there would I find a settled rest while others go and come. Not as a stranger or a guest, but like a child at home. Isn't that a beautiful way to render? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There I'll find a settled rest while others go and come. Not as a stranger or a guest, but like a child at home. As a fairly young boy, I started going off uh, to do things in my life. As a 15-year-old, I went to Washington to be a, a U.S. Senate page, and it seemed like from that time on I was going somewhere. And sometime, I think in my late teens, 18 or 19, I was going off somewhere, and my dad looked at me. My dad was a, a, a U.S. Marine from the Second World War, fought in the South Pacific, fought at Peleliu, if any of you are Marines. Uh, Marines stand at attention when they hear the word Peleliu because they took 85% casualties on that island. So my dad had seen some things, but he was a very tender father. And he looked at me on that occasion when I was leaving. He said, son, it seems like you've been going away all your life. You've been saying goodbye to us all your life. And uh, that, that really hit me. I mean, you can see I can still remember it now because there was no place on earth where I felt safer and better than at home with my father. In fact, I, I can remember coming back from Covenant Seminary uh, during break time, driving back from St. Louis and thinking to myself, if I can just put my foot inside my father's door, everything will be all right. Um, and my dad died in 1992. I've, I've, I've walked in this world for 25 years now without my dad. And I, I still feel like an orphan without him here. Uh, because just having my foot inside my father's door, I knew I was home. Where my, where my father was, I was home. Well, here's the psalmist saying, when I'm with God, I'm home. That's the place where he belongs. That's the place where he finds settled rest. That's the greatest blessing. You know, it's like David says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of iniquity. Or what one thing that I have desired, that, that I may dwell with you. Um, David knows the greatest blessing in life is fellowship with God. And it's the culminating blessing that he speaks of in this psalm. I hope this psalm encourages you in the Christian life. I don't know what you're facing today, but whatever it is, you need this psalm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Psalm 23. I pray you'd bless these brothers as they discuss it now and uh, as they encourage one another and pray for one another. Thank you for your word. 
Uh, it is sweeter than honey, and it's exactly what we need. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.